Well, thank you, Becky, for leading us. Um, sorry. So thoughtfully um, to lead us into thinking about this subject this morning. Um, my name is Julia Essex, and we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount using Nikki Gumbel's book, The Jesus Lifestyle, to help us. And I've also used some material from other sources to add to it. A man says to his wife, Whenever I get cross with you, you never seem to get upset. How do you manage to control your temper? His wife replied, Oh, I just go and clean the toilet. <laughs> How does that help? asked the husband. I use your toothbrush. <laughs> so, as we come to consider the thorny issue of how to handle our anger, I'm going to start with a definition. Anger is an outward sign of pain, hurt, sadness, fear, rejection or loss. It is an emotion and a natural passion. We all experience it. It is part of our normal emotional makeup. It can make us feel strong and powerful or reduce us to a blubbering wreck. It can overwhelm us in a flash or it can slow burn inside of us. Anger is not wrong in itself. Carol, Tra Carol Travis points out in her book, Anger, the Misunderstood Emotion, that anger is a powerful motivator to change things that are wrong. She goes on to say that people can use anger to probe for truth and challenge injustice, or they can use it in bitterness and revenge. We can choose how we respond to our anger and learn how to release anger in positive ways. I rather like this definition from the NIV Thematic Study Bible, which defines anger like this. A state of indignation and outrage, often resulting from stress caused by injustice or insult. The Bible affirms God's righteous anger against sin and urges moderation in regard to human anger. So, when learning how to handle anger, we need to consider what causes us to be angry. Jesus himself was angry at times. Matthew, along with other gospel writers, recalls how Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple area. He called the Pharisees, you blind fools. On one occasion in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus was surrounded by critical Pharisees, it says, he looked round at them in anger and was deeply distressed by their sudden stubborn hearts. So there is such a thing as righteous anger, which I'm going to look at in a minute, but I think it would be good to read the passage that we're actually studying. I forgot to do that. I'm so sorry. So we're going to read now Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26 from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. 
and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So, quite startling words by Jesus there. But as I was saying, there is such a thing as righteous anger, and in the Old Testament, there are 20 different words for wrath, and between them, they are used 580 times. The prophets and the psalmists use strongly personal terms when they speak of the anger of the Lord. For example, in Isaiah, we read, See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. Sometimes people so emphasize the anger of God that there is a suggestion that God has a dual nature, that he is love and wrath. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is wrath. However, it does say in 1 John 4 that God is love. His anger is part of his holy love, a flame that sears and purifies. There is no moral flabbiness in God. Anger is God's personal reaction to sin. He loves people and is angry on behalf of the victims of oppression, injustice and cruelty. C.S. Lewis says, such anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. For the rest of us, there is also a place for righteous anger. Indignation against wickedness is surely an essential element of goodness in a world in which moral evil is always present. How can a person who knows, for example, about the evil of child abuse fail to be angry? Our lack of anger can reveal a failure to love and to care for our fellow human beings. William Wilberforce is just one example of someone who rightly channeled his righteous anger against the slave trade towards the constructive purpose of abolition. The difficulty we face as fallen human beings is making sure we do not sin when we are angry. St. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.26, In your anger, do not sin. And Aristotle wrote, Anybody can become angry, that is easy, but to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power and is not easy. I think we'd all agree with that. Nikki Gumbel states that too often our anger tends to be unrighteous. We get angry because we are hurt, jealous, proud or arrogant. Compare this to Jesus' anger, which was always directed against sin and injustice. It was always based on love of others. His personal ego was not wrapped up in it. When hanging on the cross in agony, attacked, 
oppressed, exploited, hurt and rejected. He did not say, I have a right to feel angry. Rather, he said, Father, forgive. There are several Greek words for anger, and the one used by Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 means long-lived anger, the anger of a person who nurses a grudge. It means anger that broods, refuses to be pacified, and seeks revenge. Jesus sees anger as the root of murder. The process starts with angry feelings, which if nursed, lead to hatred. And if unchecked, the fruit is sometimes actual murder. You only have to read a daily newspaper to find examples of this. In the passage we're looking at today, Jesus is concerned with this wrong sort of anger, an anger that lies unresolved in the heart, festering until it bursts forth in destructive words and behavior. So, how should we deal with our angry feelings? We must not lash out or bury our anger, but find a positive way to express our anger. This means addressing the specific incident in a controlled manner with the aim of seeking resolution. Let me give you a specific example. Jill has just finished the, cleaning the kitchen floor and Jack walks in from a cycling trip with muddy shoes making a mess on the floor. There are four potential negative responses that Jill might have. At the bottom of the ladder, she suppresses her angry feelings and gives Jack the silent treatment for several hours. Slightly better than that, she displaces her angry feelings, so she does express them, but she does it aggressively and displaces it by shouting at the kids and kicking the dog instead of addressing the issue at hand. Slightly better than that is that she does actually address her anger towards Jack, but she does it in a nasty way. She attacks him verbally and says, you stupid, selfish idiot, you don't care about anyone except yourself. I'm sick of being taken for granted and treated like a servant. Fourthly, slightly better still, Jill is angry at the incident, but expresses it unpleasantly. She says, I've just spent an hour cleaning the kitchen and while you've been out on your bike enjoying yourself again and then you just traipse in without a thought. I'm sure we can all identify with this. <laughs> a better way for Jill to respond would be one in which she addresses the specific incident in a controlled manner which seeks resolution. So she might say something like this. When you walk into the kitchen with your muddy shoes on, it makes me feel like you don't value the effort I put into trying to keep our house nice, and it makes me feel angry. This opens the way for reconciliation and is a constructive and positive way of dealing with anger. Not all that easy to do, however. <laughs> so, Nikki Gumbel has a number of suggestions to help us reach this stage of maturity in handling our angry feelings. The first one is press the pause button. In Psalm 145, verse 8, we read that God is slow to anger. Conversely, we read in Proverbs that the fool is hot-headed and that the quick-tempered do foolish things. 
Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, said, when angry, count to 10 before you speak. If very angry, count to 100. In these days of email, text, WhatsApp and Twitter, it can be all too easy to respond in haste when we're angry. Bishop Sandy Miller advises writing a letter if you're angry, but leave it overnight. Read it again in the morning and tear it up. Others might find it helpful to express angry feelings in a journal or through drawing or painting. Some might find physical exertion helpful to vent anger in a safe way. Digging the garden, running, tearing up paper, throwing stones into a river, shouting where no one can hear or screaming into a cushion. Pressing the pause button also gives us time to talk to trusted, wise friends who themselves are not quick-tempered. And that's important that you align yourself with people who are calm and who handle anger in a mature way so that they don't fan the flame of your anger but help you to come down. We're not supposed to push anger down but to talk it out and then to work out a way to respond in love. The next positive suggestion Nikki makes is this. Watch our words. Jesus warns us that words are powerful and that they can be extremely damaging to relationships. In verse 22 of the passage we read, it says this, Anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Raka was an Aramaic term of contempt, similar to calling someone an idiot. In this passage, then, Jesus is using examples of the lightest term of abuse, the words idiot and fool, and warning us of their danger. Angry words pierce the heart and are extremely damaging. Jesus is not suggesting that we suppress our emotions, but he is warning against reacting out of anger because we have been hurt in some way. Our church and our homes need to be safe places in which we do not fear that people are going to get angry with us. They should be places where we encourage one another and express love, affirmation, acceptance, forgiveness and grace. There will be occasions when we hurt each other and make each other angry because we are fallible. But our words should be used to lead to forgiveness and reconciliation to build each other up and not to tear each other down. An important verse on which I think we would all do well to meditate is Proverbs 15 verse 1, which says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Let's be people who actively seek to choose our words carefully and to keep in good relationship with each other. In order to achieve this, Nikki says we need to master our mind. In verses 21 and 22 of our passage, Jesus says, You have heard it said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus traces murder back to the secret place of the human heart and the mind and the thoughts that go on. 
our thought processes ultimately could lead to murder. Jesus says that the place to begin is early on with the initial feelings of anger. They need to be dealt with ruthlessly. I suggest that to do this, we need to bring our angry thoughts to God. Tell him everything we feel. Name all the emotions. Give them into his hands. Deposit them at the foot of the cross and leave them there. And then as an act of the will, we must choose to forgive and ask God to help us to be healed of the hurt and upset. We must determine in our hearts to turn our back on any desire for revenge and instead seek blessing for those who've hurt us. To help us to do this, we need to count the cost. If we choose not to master our anger, it can lead to the destruction of relationships, families, marriages, it can lead to the abuse of children, violent crime, and even the breakdown of communities. For seven years, I worked as a counsellor in a family support centre, and I saw at first hand how devastating to people's lives unresolved anger can be. We need to deal immediately with anger in relationships and take drastic action. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 puts it like this. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. We are to relentlessly pursue peace and reconciliation. Jesus gives two specific examples. First in verse 23, when there is a Christian with whom we are very angry, Jesus says that we are to settle the matter out of church disharmony destroys the church when christians get angry with one another when they attack and insult their brothers and sisters the body of christ is split secondly in verses 25 to 26 using a parable about a court a judge and a prison jesus urges us to settle out of court before the matter gets out of hand Nicky Gumbel used to be a practicing barrister and he says that he's seen many cases where it would have been preferable to both parties if they could have settled without the need of a court case. But often it is unresolved anger that spurs the parties on in spite of the consequences. So the way to deal with anger is to pursue reconciliation. In verses 23 to 24 of our passage we read this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. In Jesus' day, worshippers brought a gift and an animal to the temple to sacrifice. In this instance, it is implied that the worshipper is in the wrong and must seek reconciliation. Jesus says that there is no point in offering his gift until he is reconciled to his brother. He points out that our anger in human relationships erects a barrier, not only between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also between us and God. It is not just our own anger that, that creates this barrier. If we are conscious that we have angered someone else, we must equally cease worship and seek reconciliation. Ugandan Bishop Festo Kivengir 
told how he was going off to preach after a row with his wife. The Holy Spirit said to him, go back, pray with your wife. He argued, I'm due to preach in 20 minutes. I'll do it afterwards. Okay, said the Holy Spirit, you go and preach. I'll stay with your wife. <laughs> so worship cannot be detached from conduct. They are inextricably linked. In one sense, our conduct flows from our worship. In another, it is only when our conduct is right that we're in a fit state to worship God. That is what the Old Testament prophets pointed out over and over again. The standard set in this passage is extraordinarily high, and I'm sure we are all too aware of how often we fail to deal with anger in the way Jesus commands. We are brought back to the cross to cry out for mercy and forgiveness. The forgiveness we receive gives us the strength to forgive and seek reconciliation. Dealing with anger involves both receiving and giving forgiveness through the cross of Christ. It requires a determined act of the will to deal ruthlessly with anger and root it out from our lives. This cannot achieve, be achieved without the help of the Holy Spirit. Corrie ten Boom, who was involved in the Dutch resistance and imprisoned by the Nazis in Ravensbrück concentration camp, describes in her own words her battle to overcome anger, to forgive and to be reconciled to one of the guards from the concentration camp. She writes, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in grey overcoat, a brown felt hat that clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I liked to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their coats, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. 
How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my wallet rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flow, flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let's just be still before the Lord. Father God, I thank you for my emotions. I confess that I have not always recognized or fully accepted my emotions or properly understood their place in how you made me. I confess that I have not expressed my emotions correctly. 
I have pushed them down, ignored them, or allowed them uncontrolled reign. As a result, I have caused hurt to others. Please forgive me for doing this. I confess that I have sometimes used my emotions and my anger in ungodly ways and sought to control and manipulate others through my emotional behavior. I repent of doing this and ask you to forgive me. I ask you now, Father, to help me express my emotions and buried feelings in godly ways. I choose to face the hurt and pain and give you permission to bring your healing into these areas of my life. I ask these things in the name of my Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you. When we go into small group time with 